1: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today, we welcome Avidan Ross of Root Ventures to discuss hardware investing. I was fortunate enough to meet up with Avidan in Los Angeles when I was recently out there. Uh, This interview starts off a little different than normal, as we don't even get into the question set for 10 to 15 minutes, as we started chatting about his very unique business card and segued right into much of the planned discussion material on hardware. So in this segment, we talk through Avidan's thoughts on ways that folks in the startup industry can express their creativity and interests. His thoughts on why hardware and physical good brands dominate the rankings of people's favorite brands, why extremes and fat tails are developing today between increasingly digital connected experiences and highly analog custom physical product experiences. We also touch on my recent blog post, Changing the Asset Value Equation, and discussed how some platform hardware approaches, like the iPhone, Echo, and even the Tesla, are allowing hardware assets to deliver more and more value over time. Then finally, we discuss Avidon's background and how it led him to the start of Root Ventures, after which we talk about the landscape of hardware and the categories within it. We then cover why Avidon has adopted a hardware thesis and what makes hardware startups so compelling for investment. And we wrap up by discussing this concept of a Trojan horse in the context of hardware products and why this allows for enormous value creation. Next up is the interview with Avidan Ross of Root Ventures.
1: Logo on the back here. Oh, wait till you see. Hold on, I'll show you something crazy. It's the business card.
0: Oh, nice. (laughs) This is cool.
1: So you got to eat your own dog food, right? You say everyone should be doing stuff in Shenzhen in China. So if you say it, you got to do it. So I had my business cards made in China. This is awesome. They just laser cut this out? No. So it, well, so it's a combination of stuff. So they basically, this is a PCB etching. So it's actually a fully functional computer. You snap away those two corners and it plugs in via USB. You're kidding. Yeah. You see those four traces? Yeah. That's the USB spec. Um, and then on the back, you solder on a Wi-Fi module. And then it becomes like a USB Wi-Fi carrier. This is the coolest VC card I've ever seen. (laughs) There's a guy, uh, a friend, his name's Ian Bernstein. He's the CTO of Sphero. His card is quite literally the most awesome PCB business card I've seen. So he gives you the business card, and then you can actually turn it into a remote control car. I mean, Car? yeah. So he's Sphero, right? So like all his toys are like rolling toys, but you can add wheels to his business card and a little chip, and then from your phone you can control his business card and drive it around. It's awesome. <laughs> I'd love to see him demo that. Give out the card, and he does. He does. Yeah. No, Ian's awesome. Those, those guys at Sphero are, are fantastic. It's cool, oh, man. This is a nice touch. Thanks. I got to do something, something creative. Standard business cards aren't cutting. Or you can just be creative on other things. Because the truth of the matter is, is like I feel like I'm. it's a little pushy and contrived to pull out my business card on people. Because they're like, do I need your business card for? But it feels a little bit like, I'm like, ooh, check out my business card. And they're like, why should I look at your, oh, cool. But like that initial kind of like business card handoff, everyone's like, what? You're a tech VC. What the hell are you handing me a business card for? People are like over business cards now. Yes. None of the founders have them. Yeah. No they, no, they have them. They have them. They, they have them. You know why they end up having They end up having them when you walk into a meeting which has a bunch of people you haven't met yet. And you're trying to quickly figure out who the hell else is in the meeting. Right. And it's a reciprocal, quick, like, give me your title. Right? And the only way you can ask somebody their title is you hand them a business card. Then they have to hand you back when you're like, all right assistant it's regional manager assistant regional manager to the vice president all right and then
0: they sit down and set up the little like yeah. wall of business cards yeah so they remember who's who and in yeah. which position
1: it all depends on what type of work you're doing right if you need to sit in meetings or go to conferences gotta have paper you know you gotta have a mm-hmm. card to hand out but mm-hmm. the irony is we had so many apps that tried to solve that right there was the, the bump and like you know, I mean, there's so many ways I could exchange digital contact information with you right now. That's way more contextual, way more deeply data rich than me handing you a business card. Sure. But there's nothing more convenient in the user experience than the physical handoff of a, of a tangible object. Oh, for sure. Right. There's like, and, and also on top of it, to me, that business card, I, I had to do it because it reflects what, who I am too. Right. Like I, I designed that business card in Eagle which is the PCB design software, right? And people still have that. I mean, and I I can jump into it for hours. I believe that there's like an obsession with tangible objects, right? We still are, you know, tactile human, tactile people. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you exchange something with someone, a physical exchange of goods still is like, that's the human experience, right?
0: Oh, I agree. You look at I recently was looking at a list of the most powerful brands in the U.S. Some of which weren't tech companies. You know, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised that they're on there, but almost all of them were like physical, tangible good brands. Mm-hmm. Brands like Amazon, mm-hmm. that only recently started releasing physical products, didn't make the list. Yep. Um, Google is further down than you would think. Yep. So people don't really have
1: that brand enthusiast sort of strong affiliation as much. Absolutely. More. I mean, if you look at what Nike has done over the last 50 years, it's amazing, right? Like yeah. their, their sneakers are non-differentiated, but there's an obsession, an absolute obsession. People will buy their sneakers and never wear them and hold on to them as like collector's items because that's the idea of a collector's item, right? For sure. I've been uh, personally contemplating buying very old cars, not like super fancy, like, you know, 1960 Porsche, whatever, <laughs> yeah. but like just getting in touch with like classic old, old cars, because I believe that eventually we're going to get to a point where driving is going to be purely a, an emotional, like it's going to be a convertible. It has to be a convertible. And it has to be fun to drive because yeah. the only reason we're ever going to drive in the future is for fun. Right. Right. That, that will be the reason you drive. Recreation. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's pretty interesting that people's, like, uh, brand affinities definitely lie. In, and, and, and the funny part is if you look at the correlation between that list and, like, the size of companies, you would find out that it's actually not one-to-one, right? There are these huge companies that people have no brand affinity towards, right? That people don't care about IBM or Accenture or Deloitte or, mm. like, services companies don't matter to people. Uh, commodity products don't matter to people. So, like, gas companies, nobody cares. BP, Shell, people go gas station to gas station. Sure. They don't care where they're getting their gas from. But it's it's pretty interesting. I think a lot of it also has to do with like design-oriented companies, companies that think a lot about their design, design, branding, marketing. I think that that sort of building that sort of brand affinity is important. For sure. It's funny you mentioned sneakers because we were walking up from downstairs
0: and on the first floor is a sneaker shop mm-hmm. they've got all their bright colored sneakers right in the front window and yeah. my wife who just you know just left now but she said that's the first place i'm going to on
1: the brea is that sneaker shop yep they have uh, they have a couple sneaker stores around here that will literally have hour-long waits for people to go in and get and like they have security that uh. let in only a certain number of people at a time so that's, you know, obsession with physical product definitely hasn't hasn't gone away. Um, I could totally jump right into like, I mean, this totally leads right into where my thesis is on a lot of investing, especially on the consumer side, right, consumer physical products. Uh, why are people willing to pay a premium for products? Whereas there's an expectation that if it's digital, if it's software, it's free, right? The idea, that like, you know, they, they say, if you don't pay for the product, then you are the product, right? That idea of your data is what's valuable. So you don't pay for Facebook, you don't pay for Twitter, because you are that product. You're the product. And in the and Apple has harped on this hundreds of times, mostly I think because they haven't been able to figure out how to turn their consumers into the product, or arguably are so good at it that it's behind the scenes. Um, But they basically say, like, we're not selling your information. We're selling you an experience. We're selling you the product. And you pay $700, $800 for an iPhone, right? And that is probably one of the most emotional products people have. Or at least it's emotional in the sense that if you tried to take it away from them, they'd probably flip their shit. Sure. Right? So it's pretty wild what's gone on over the last 10 years or so in Mm -hmm. the hardware space. Um, I'm a firm believer that there's a massive shift in the way that people interact with the world around them and there's there's actually a real pretty strong split, right? You have a world of deeply connected devices and experiences that are constantly connected, constantly interactive, constantly spitting off data and then you have this deeply authentic analog experience that people are having. Right? So the idea that someone would go out and find a leather bag where you know exactly where the leather came from, where it was stitched, or perhaps it was stitched right there on the spot when you when you bought it or when you ordered it. Or you took your dimensions and said, I want a bag exactly this size, and it was made to order. And that's a very, very authentic experience, but it becomes a very analog product that you emotionally hold on to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, you have companies that are building connected luggage that is constantly beaming its location into the cloud so that you can track your luggage as it moves around so you never lose your bag ever again and there are a couple companies now doing it although the first I think was an interesting one out of YC called uh was it called Blue, blue smart blue don't know yeah um I'm so bad with names. <laughs> that's that's the horrible sure, thing to I'll admit. Uh, thank God for my for my iPhone because I could very quickly just write GPS connected luggage and and there it is. Um, but but it's a it's a world where people have gotten you know that split is pretty interesting. Because at the same time, you know, people are looking for certain experiences of their life that are very disconnected and then certain parts of their life they want to be fully connected. Uh, I focus clearly on the fully connected part, but I'm very, I, I try to continuously stay aware of the macro trend of people wanting to maintain authenticity in their lives. And and as things get more and more digital and more and more ubiquitous or commodity, um, there's a desire for, for focusing on The things, quote unquote, that matter to them, Mm -hmm. uh, which are authenticity, design, appearance, a brand, a personal brand that's built around stuff. I mean, that's why I think Nest and the idea that they had such a beautiful industrial design was super important because it was a product that sat in the center of your home that we just took for granted was supposed to be ugly and looked like, you know, the same thermostat in your high school. You had at home, oh, right? Sure. It was just yeah. it was it was hideous, and we were willing to pay three hundred dollars for it. Um, both that beautiful industrial design, but also this this additional experience of saying I can now control my temperature from anywhere in the world that I am. I have full control over my home, right? I it gave you a, a, a sense of empowerment that yeah. you owned your home's thermostat or, or temperature control from anywhere. Um, and it was an empowering, empowering feature. From a control standpoint? I think it was from a control standpoint, but it was also about, I think that the the word AI gets thrown around a lot these yep. days. Yep. But really, I believe that the machine learning element was very, uh, very interesting. I think people, smart home still means hobbyist Wires everything together to make yeah. their lights turn off at the right time, their lights turn on at the right time. You're using a different hub and a different device, and all these different things. Um, and I, and I, you know, self admittedly have been a smart home junkie since my days. I was a, I had a 75 square foot dorm room at Columbia University in New York City where I could literally touch every wall, sitting in the center of the room. But I still <laughs> ended up wiring the entire thing for. A smart home, if you will. So, I used something called X10. Okay. And every time you tried to turn on or off a light, it made the loudest snapping sound. So, not only was it like horribly unnecessary because of the size of my room, now every time I wanted to turn on the light on and off or anything smart home would happen. So, a couple things happened at once. It would be like, pop, 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 pop. <laughs> this, this is awful. But in any event, really what people are after is their their objects to be more and more intelligent. And the the smart home experience I think that worked for Nest was the idea that your Nest thermostat was gonna learn over time and become better than the day you first bought it. So you Mm -hmm. bought a $300 thermostat, but very rarely do you then look at the product you bought three months later or six months later and say, I like it even more today than I did when I first got it. Right. And that is a huge, huge selling point. Everyone is always, you know, there's that, uh, that anecdotal sort of, like, oh, everyone says, the day you drive a car off the lot, it loses 30%. And we all think about that, that our products are at their peak value the day we have them. But what we have now with connected devices is the idea that products can get better over time. So you bought a Nest thermostat, and in the beginning, you set the temperature. You said, I want it to be 73 degrees, and then at night, we like it a little bit warmer, so let's set it to 75. And what the Nest has done is it basically analyzes how well your home reacts to outside temperatures. So if you have a very old home, then it might not be as well insulated, or maybe it's even better insulated because it used, you know, whatever whatever materials they used in the 1910s. And... Uh, The the Nest thermostat basically sold you on this idea of the connectivity into the cloud. So the fact that you connected your Nest to Wi-Fi and there were sensors in that Nest that could basically report how well your home was heating or cooling, combine that into the cloud where there's unlimited processing power and a combination of uh, other data sources. So for example, it could connect to the temperature in your city, or in your zip code, mm-hmm. as well as a cross-section analysis against other homes that have had similar uh, trends, if you will, of heating and cooling. Maybe around even prediction on weather patterns. Exactly. It's gonna drop 10 degrees in the next few hours. Exactly, so if it's gonna drop 10 degrees in the next few hours, then maybe we shouldn't turn on the air conditioning. We'll just rely on the home cooling itself in the next couple hours. And then on top of it, you also have Location awareness. Are you in the home? Are you out of the home? And that was a fully self-contained product, which to me is the most interesting. Is you know, a lot of people try and sell this hub, hub and multiple devices, but at the end of the day, you walk into Home Depot or you walk into Lowe's or you walk into Best Buy, you're there to buy something. Yeah. You're there to buy a product. You're you're not there to buy into a platform. You're not there to buy an ecosystem. So you know, I, I, have never really, uh, I, I've tried out a lot of the hubs and some of them are fantastic, but I don't think anybody walks into a store saying, I want to buy a door lock. And the guy selling them the door lock says, great, which hub do you own? Right. The right. door lock needs to work on its own. It needs to be compatible universally. It needs to work well enough so that somebody walks in, you could ask somebody, do you use iPhone or Android? And that's an appropriate question. And to a certain degree, that is your hub. You have sure. made a decision yeah. that your phone is your hub. Um, but that, from my perspective, I think that Nest really blazed a trail for quite a few companies to think about it differently. Yeah. And before that, there, was, you know, there were connected devices. There were things using expensive cellular connections. There were things that tried to connect to your Wi-Fi and had screens on everything. I mean, I've had connected devices for, like I said, since X10 in the 90s. Um, but they've gotten so much better over time. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, startups now are are able to really take advantage of a, of a new paradigm for building for building hardware. Great. There's a couple things
0: in what you said that that I want to touch on here. So it's timely you bring up the example of driving off the lot with the car because mm-hmm. I just wrote a blog post last week, and I think I called it "Changing the Asset Value Equation," where hardware all of a sudden can appreciate in value after the time of purchase, where previously that was never the case. You drive the car a lot or you buy some device and before you know it, it's depreciated, there's new versions, but now we have things like the Amazon Echo or the mobile phone in my pocket or the Tesla, which arguably will appreciate in value over time as more software and
1: firmware or what have you is, is added to it and the value increases. Absolutely, I, I think I, uh, a lot of people, you know, we, we have a interesting experience when you when you meet a Tesla owner. Their their first couple of weeks are amazing, because they you know it's a totally different driving experience. They're playing with all the fancy dials and everything. But the truth of the matter is, every time someone buys a new car, that's how they feel. Sure, right? Yeah. That's the that's the new car smell, the new car experience. The interesting piece is that first time they get a pop-up on their screen and says, congratulations, you now have the following new features. Yes. And that, to people, is something beyond anything they've ever experienced before. I mean, to a certain degree, they've experienced it with a phone, and the phone will get firmware updates, but more often than not, people think that those firmware updates are security patches and just staying up to date. The fact that Tesla released their autopilot function through firmware, over the air, that is a, that's, a, that's a turning point. I, I agree, I think that you know, th- the other way to think about it is, are you actually buying the hardware at that point, or are you buying into a continuous service upgrade model? Right? If Tesla told you, look, we want you to pay a monthly fee, and all of these updates come to you, would you pay it? Absolutely. Right, I mean that's the, the so the alternative model then is: Do you actually even own your car? Are you are you owning the car? Or are you subscribing to Tesla's service of transportation? You shouldn't have to. You should be able to switch out the hardware any time you get in an accident. You get a you get a new one. Right, it's a uh, it, it's it's a pretty wild. I mean, one one could argue that having an autopilot function plus purely over the air updates essentially turns Teslas into rolling. Uh, rolling smartphones or rolling rolling computers right Agreed. that was my sort of thesis is that it will become a platform like the iPhone with
0: applications that are built by you know third parties and plugins and all sorts of features
1: that not even that Tesla hasn't even yep. planned on and you see Uber trying to do it from the other direction right Uber is is saying we're not going to build the hardware we're just going to build the platform right they're taking a a, a software model where they say okay you want Uber is transportation as a service, mm-hmm. right? So let's go ahead and bake Uber into other applications. So if you're using, you know, uh, OpenTable and you you've just got a reservation, when you're done, OpenTable, you know, or whatever it might be, it might be synchronized to when you pay your check using a using a, a check paying app that your Uber is automatically paged. And I totally agree that a lot of this is going to move towards a service model where people who are buying physical, tangible products are not interested in just the experience day one. They're interested in the ongoing experience of having that product. And that to, the only reason that happens is, is because of a pretty serious paradigm shift that occurred about... Uh, I would say 10 years ago, right? So 10 years ago, if you wanted to build a physical piece of hardware and turn it into this rolling platform with over the updates, you basically were in a pretty tough bind. One, Wi-Fi was not yet ubiquitous. Some people were still plugging in computers at offices. Some, you know, there was a little bit of Wi-Fi coverage in people's homes as, you know, Verizon and Comcast were starting to ship out Wi-Fi routers for people. Uh, Bluetooth was... Around, but it wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is today. And then the cellular providers were charging an arm and a leg to get data access to their networks. Now, connectivity is ubiquitous. Everyone is carrying Bluetooth on them. Every building in the developed world has a Wi-Fi connection. And there's cellular coverage in between that the cellular providers are willing to charge pennies, if not dollars, to, to gain access to. So now, all of a sudden, any device can be connected. And there are companies like Particle and Raspberry Pi that make it very easy to prototype and scale up. Although Particle is probably better suited to scaling up. And you basically now can prototype something that's connected to the cloud. Now, that's all fine and good, except what we have now in the cloud is unlimited storage, unlimited processing power and the interconnectivity to other data streams. Yep. So you were talking about you know, future weather patterns. You can now get access to that with a couple API calls. You know the weather anywhere in the world. And as a matter of fact, you can actually go so far as to not just do a, a, a weather check, but you can do predictions of further out weather, You know, yep. a week, a month, on a zip code by zip code basis. So those things combined with the fact that a product called Arduino, launched out of NYU and it was actually a collaboration between an Italian university and NYU's ITP and they basically created an open source microcontroller called Arduino, which changed the way that electrical engineers, mechanical engineers and just hackers and prototypers were able to create a proof of concept product. So now all of a sudden you have people creating these small little products for a couple hundred to a couple thousand bucks they are able to connect it into the cloud and create this experience that only Nest or Tesla could provide. And by the way, Nest did not raise a 750K angel round and then a $3 million seed round. Nest went out and raised $20, $30 million out the gate because back then you had to build it on your own. Now startups can get started with just a couple grand, well, maybe a couple hundred grand to get your first prototype started and build a proof of concept to actually show what people want and how, and, and what the experience could look like. And all those, that ubiquitous connectivity, unlimited processing, connectivity to other data streams, and the ability to prototype super cheaply, that is what has allowed startups to exist in this ecosystem. It's like the convergence of a bunch of different drivers at the same time
0: yep. that allows something to occur. Right? Absolutely. Um, so many startups and so many trends have failed just because... Timing wasn't right, they came too early, the connectivity didn't exist. Exactly. Um, but yeah, we look at external, we call them external drivers a lot. You know, what's going on from a legislative standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from a, a market and consumer standpoint, that's allowing the potential for a startup or a business to exist in a really scalable way. I mean, an obvious example would be Uber. You know, before there were mobile devices in everyone's hand and you could do remote, on-demand, requests, you know, at your fingertips, Uber was not going to be a viable concept, at least in the form it is today. Absolutely. We think about this up a lot. All right. So anyway, just to back up here, today we're in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm with Don Ross, founder and partner of Root Ventures. Before founding the firm in 2013, he designed industrial robotics for the Food Network's kitchens. And before that, Don was CTO of CIM Group, a $15 billion investment firm where he focused on industrial internet investing. Previous to CIM, Avidan worked as an embedded network application developer at Excite at Home, and Avidan was generous enough to meet me in Los Angeles. I've been out here traveling with my wife for her birthday, and he was kind enough to uh, carve out some time to join me and talk a little bit about hardware investing, robotics, and, and all of the above here. So, Avi welcome. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. So, we've already kind of gotten into this, but uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in
1: VC? Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, I started out in hardware way back in the day when it was a little bit boring. I was working on cable modems at Excited Home back when people were wondering why anyone in their right mind would need... A one line at home (laughs) DSL you know 56k should be absolutely sufficient Um, and then after the crash basically ended up moving back to New York where I studied I studied uh, uh, computer science with a focus on embedded network application hardware at Columbia so built one of the first voice over IP handsets and really saw that connectivity was was where it was or where the future was but this was late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, as we discussed, timing is everything and building hardware companies was super expensive and there wasn't funding out there for it. So I ended up getting a call from a friend of mine who was starting an investment firm here in Los Angeles and brought me in as CTO. It was an amazing, amazing growth trajectory. You know, we went from 200 million under management to 15 billion under management in a matter of, uh, eight years, seven, eight years. And it was, it was awesome. Uh, we, I had focused my time investing in industrial internet or mostly infrastructure. So water, wind, solar, smart grid, vehicle telematics, building energy management. And for me, the interesting thing that changed about six or seven years ago was I saw a trend where people were asking us for less and less money and we were raising more and more of it. And it all hit a turning point when I got approached by some guys who were leaving Tesla and they said, we need two million dollars, and we're going to build a vehicle telematics company. And I was shocked. I was like, "How? How the hell are you going to build anything for two million dollars?" I, I was seeing companies that raised twenty to get started. This was yeah. a, this was the time that Nest had just gotten off the ground, and they said, no, "No, no, come come to Menlo Park, and we'll show you." And I flew up there, and I actually now am based in the in, in the valley because I, I believe that that's really the mecca of everything and the the epicenter of it all. And They showed me their first prototypes that were built on Arduinos in 3D printed cases, utilizing a cellular connectivity to basically track vehicles for fleets. So FedEx, UPS, electric car fleets, and they really were going to do it for $2 million. And that was the first time that I had seen somebody take the Elon Musk school of building hardware, right? I mean, the Tesla Roadster, if you look at it, it's actually a bunch of parts from Lotus you know so that's an MVP right don't build the entire car yourself just build the drivetrain prove something out realize you have something and then say stop okay now let's build it all ourselves got it you know uh, he didn't launch on Kickstarter but just like he did with the Model 3 he ran the Roadster through a pre-order campaign so he knew what his inventory risks were he knew how many people wanted his car and he could basically adjust his manufacturing process around consumer demand for his products and you know I think that a lot of that has found its way into hardware startups, but when I saw this, I knew I had to get back into hardware and back into startups. So I ended up leaving the investment firm I was at, I gave them a year of non-compete, and during that year, that's when I got a call from the Food Network. So once an engineer, always an engineer. When I got exposed to all this Arduino and Raspberry Pi stuff, I started building crazy robots in my backyard, and they were all food-related robots. So. Uh, Apparently, someone from the Food Network found me on the internet and called me up and said, we want to make a TV show about the crazy robots you're building in your backyard. Uh, the, the show never made it to air because our prototype oven burnt my buddy's eyebrows off on camera uh, in the process of making a 45-second pizza pie, but it was, it was absolutely awesome. Oh, that would have been great for air. Yeah, I, that, I thought so too, but the lawyers at the Food Network apparently thought differently. And yeah, it, but it was great. I, I knew my mark. I, I wasn't. I wasn't really going for being on TV on the Food Network. Really, what it was about was getting my hands dirty again with building hardware and seeing it firsthand and realizing what was accessible to people. Traveling to Shenzhen, seeing the actual, you know, city blocks filled with prototyping shops and part distributors and malls that were just selling LED lights and realizing that we were at the tipping point of startups getting to build hardware once again. And so I ended up starting Root Ventures. Originally, we were called Lion Wells, but Root Ventures originally started out by just me writing checks personally and a couple friends of mine who have always liked backing what I do. And we focused our investments on, at the core, low-cost robotics and connected devices picks and shovels behind the scenes. So engineering tools, developer tools, manufacturing tools, prototyping tools, design tools. And then we have a, a deep belief that data is gonna change supply chain manufacturing and logistics on the front end. So we've done about 16 deals. We actually ended up raising a fund Early last year, and I'm a math nerd, so we raised thirty-one point four one five nine two six and fifty-three. ask six. you home with your Yeah, so up high, it was gonna be a twenty-five million dollar fund, and then it was gonna be a thirty million dollar fund, and then I decided to stop at a number that made me happy inside every time That's I awesome. said it. Someone, someone told me I should rename the fund Irrational Ventures, um, but I thought my LPs wouldn't appreciate me naming the fund Irrational. <laughs> As long as you don't have any LPs in Australia, you're all okay. good. Oh well, that Root, Root Ventures. I got a couple emails from some Australian friends when I announced Root Ventures. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we, you know, we do about six to eight deals a year, uh, and, and really a lot, a lot of focus in the robotics and connected devices space, hardware, you know, industrial, enterprise, consumer, all of the above.
0: This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Cool. So we are talking hardware investing. Can you start off by talking about how you think about the landscape of hardware? Tell us about your thesis and sort of the, the areas you're interested in. But how do you sort of categorize the hardware investment landscape and decide
1: where you're going to focus? Yeah. So I think, you know, an easy way to, to focus on the categorization or segmentation is, is who the audience is, the product. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, there is a world of consumer hardware that's being built, and that is a very well documented in public just because it needs to be marketed to the public. So you're looking at the Fitbits and the Nests of the world, or you're looking at the drone companies that are, you know, DJI or 3D robotics. Um, But as you probably could tell, there's a bit of an overlap there because DJI and 3D robotics sell to the enterprise as well. Sure. So they're out there pushing to the enterprise and you have a lot of enterprise focused hardware companies. And then there's a an industrial element to connected devices, which are things you would never, you wouldn't see that overlap. Uh, And those industrial players are out there selling direct to manufacturers, direct to transportation and logistics customers. But we look at things, when we look at hardware, we're actually focused primarily on the value of the product above and beyond the physical, tangible asset you're handing to someone. So a lot of people look at something and, and the first question that a hardware investor will ask is what is your bomb? What is the bill of materials cost on your product? And what they're basically getting at is trying to figure out what your margin is when you sell the product at Best Buy or on Amazon. Yep. And for us, that's, it's an important element because it really reflects a deep understanding of you know, what it costs to get your product into people's hands, but that's not what we're concerned about. We actually are looking at the lifetime value of that product in people's hands. To which, customer, which is how yeah. you can price things anyway. Exactly. So you know, is, is it entirely about that 40% margin you gain the day that somebody walks out the door with your product? Or have you caught them now in an ecosystem where they're, just as we were talking about earlier, does the value of that asset appreciate? Or more importantly, are you able to monetize on that consumer day in, day out, month after month, week after week, year after year. And so that that exists for consumers, it exists for enterprises, it exists for everyone in between. And for us, that's what we would consider a Trojan horse. Okay. It looks like you're receiving a certain product, but in reality, there's something deeper inside of it. There's something else that's going on. So I think a couple really interesting examples of that.
0: Lots of fun talking to Avidan in part one of the interview. In part two, we continue the discussion on hardware Trojan horses and also hear some examples from Avidan of Trojan horses. We also discuss Avidan's response to those that view hardware as very capital intensive, more difficult to commercialize, and thus too risky to invest in, in an already very risky asset class. His thoughts on the advantages that hardware companies have over software companies. Examples of business models and approaches that work particularly well in hardware. If his approach to deal flow and connecting with founders is different, considering his focus areas. And his final thoughts on hardware and course science startups. Until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time.